Okay, so here I am in my man cave with uh, composer, pianist, conductor, general man about music, Jeremy Gill. I'd just like to welcome you, uh, and thanks for doing the podcast. Very happy to be here. We just did about an hour's worth of playing through my part of the new concerto that you wrote for me, um, so I am glad to be able to put you on the spot a little bit <laughs> and ask you some questions. Great. Yep. So I'm preternaturally obsessed with how people grew up and their early influences. And um, in a case with a podcast that I did recently with uh, X, who you know is a violinist, his childhood was extremely uh, interesting and formative in the sense that he he grew up during the Cultural Revolution in China. And yours is interesting for a a bunch of different reasons, actually, and um, we're just going to get a little personal and whatnot. And uh, I'm really happy that you're that you're that you're happy to, to do that with me. Now, uh, you lost both of your parents fairly early. Can you talk about that? Uh, well, so my my mom was very early. Um, she was 38 years old, I think, and I was 12. I have two older sisters. How old are they? Uh, five years older and two and a half years older. My parents were very orderly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Procreatively. Yes. So, um, yeah. So, you know, we were still, you know, relatively young kids. Um, and it was very unexpected. She was the picture of health uh, in every way. Uh, and started to get headaches and next thing we knew she had uh, an inoperable brain tumor and that was diagnosed as I remember it that was diagnosed on a day let's say it was Tuesday and Wednesday morning she died so it was very very fast do you know what the actual timeline was I mean how long from when you knew Uh, to when she died I mean it might have been more like three or four days but it was very very quick wow she basically was I mean she I think she knew uh, that she had a tumor and she knew that it would that they could operate but not get everything Uh, but I, I don't even think she had time to say what she wanted you know whether she wanted to uh go through the surgery or not yeah my mom died probably of the same type of cancer actually uh uh, i forget what it's called but um very very advanced very angry aggressive cancer and she was diagnosed in the beginning of december died in the beginning of february so that was three months that felt like a day so but four days like a I, I can't imagine. What about your your father? When so he <clears throat> he died uh, much later. So in two thousand six, um, he was fifty fifty eight, I think. And with him, it was very different situation because he was sick for a long time. Uh, he had type one diabetes, and there's you know all kinds of uh, problems associated with that. And in fact. When he was diagnosed as a, I forget what he was, 14-year-old kid, uh, they told him he probably wouldn't live much past 30. 
Because of the diabetes? Yeah, from the diabetes. And, you know, so he meets this woman, my mom, they get married. And, you know, she marries this guy and starts a family with him, uh, thinking that she's got 10 years with him. Right. And, you know, she dies totally unexpectedly. He outlives her by 20 years. Um, yeah, that's Do you, crazy. Um, it's only been four years since my mom died. How old are you now? 39 now. So it's been 27 years. Do, does it, does it still hurt? Or are you, as an adult, is, do you, is it colored differently since you saw it sort of through the lens of like a, a pubescent child? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it changes a lot over time. So, uh, during my 38th year uh, that was it was very present you know in my that's mind. how old she was yeah so it's kind of uh you know it's sort of like i'm any any time i live you know from then on is more than she ever experienced and that's strange mm. you know to think about um when <clears throat> i mean I don't honestly, you know, remember a lot about, you know, specific days or specific, you know, feelings, I guess. Um, I know that it's sort of just, I feel like, you know, everybody has a different story. um, And this just happens to be mine. So it's sort of, you know, I don't know what it's like to be 16 and argue with your mom. Right. It didn't happen. Yeah. So... And and one thing I definitely miss is that I never got to know her when I was an adult. As a person, person. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I did get to know my dad. You know, I got to see him as a, as a man, you know, with failings and, you know, aspirations and all this kind of stuff. When you're 12. As an actual person. Yeah, like a, yeah. Yeah. When you're 12, your mom is your mom. She's not even a separate person. Right. She's somehow an extension of you. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I, I wish I had a chance to know something about her. Yeah, I could get that. You know, I feel that in the same way that I, you know, my mom was not here from the birth of my son and all that kind of stuff. And it's just a lot of, a lot of things that you, that I wish that I could, um, experience with her. It's interesting that after almost 30 years, it's pretty much the same. Yeah. That's, um. I wish it was. I wish your answer was. Oh, it gets super easy, and I barely think about it. Well, I mean, you know, in the day to day, that's true, right? You know, right. Um, I definitely don't, you know, sit around thinking about her and thinking about the fact that she died all the time. But at the same time, it like, I think it, uh, sort of colored who I am and how I. Uh, think about things in general, the kinds of things that I'm drawn to artistically. Such as? Well, I mean, uh, I don't think anybody would describe my music as particularly joyful. <laughs> um, you know, there's a definite darkness to it. There's, there's um, often a, you know, kind of sadness to it. There's... Uh, 
you know, it's it's serious. It sort of deals with life as a as a finite thing. You know, something that you're always aware that the end is around the corner. Mm. That it's definitely a preoccupation of mine. I think that the end that that you are in a finite yeah. point in space. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the really interesting things about being human is that we you know we feel like we'll live forever right we we it's basically impossible to imagine your own non-existence right um but we know it'll happen mathematically speaking yeah as they say in fight club on a long enough time frame the survival rate for everyone drops to zero Yeah, you know? for sure. And the, sometimes, I don't know why, but like when I think about it, like Brahms or something like that, and the fact that like, you know, there's a very definite end to his timeline, and sometimes that just blows my mind that like this person was and made and then fucking completely ceased to exist yeah. is like, it's insane. It's like, it's it's both frightening and... Uh, it happens in, to everyone, so it's not frightening. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't uh, death and taxes and all that shit. So that being said, with your mom and your dad, um, at a certain point, you were basically, as I know, being raised by your grandmother. Is that correct, or sort of like um, in her influence? Mm-hmm. I, what I'm getting at is that I know at a certain point you were very steeped in a very deep and specific religious tradition. Yeah. How did that, like, first of all, describe what that is, and then how, how did that happen? Yeah. So that actually, that that was part of my life with my parents, too. Oh, I see. So um, I grew up, for as long as I remember, uh, in a fundamentalist, charismatic church. Uh, and they operated a school, also, uh and I don't know anything about how the accreditation worked back then. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, maybe it's different for it's religious It's a little schools. looser in the 80s than it <laughs> yeah, is now, maybe. Uh, so, you know, basically I, you know, I, so from kindergarten, for sure, uh, I was in the school Monday through Friday. Uh, and we went to church on Sunday. And there was also church on Wednesday. Yeah, night. what is the Wednesday night thing that like I Southern? I don't know. Well, I thought it was Southern, but it, you grew up in Pennsylvania, yeah, right? So yeah. it's kind of Southern. Uh, <laughs> Pennsylvania. Yeah, it. right. When you get to it. So um, was this like a speaking in tongues kind of yes. church? Yeah, speaking in tongues, faith healing. Um, I have very clear memories of. Um, Faith healers coming to visit the church, and and I even remember being faith healed once. What, what was your in, infirmity? <clears throat> so uh, I, from again for as long as I can remember, uh, have had sinus troubles. Uh, so uh, constantly, you know, stuffed up and runny nose. I got a lot of earaches when I was a kid, um, and. I guess I was going through a particularly bad, uh, you know, sinus period. And we were in church and this faith healer was there and my grandmother, you know, convinced my mother to take me up. 
and I remember going up. I remember the guy. Uh, he he looked like a you know televangelist. If you've ever seen uh, Benny Hinn, of course. Like it, he looked like Benny. I yeah, don't yeah, think yeah. it was, but it looked like him. Super <clears throat> like one one piece swept over hair. That's right. Did he do the sweet like throw his jacket at you action and he you didn't fall do that, down? But uh, you know I'm I'm a kid like I'm probably ten years old something like this and. He would. There was a you know line, or they were all lined up around the stage, uh, and you know I remember him sort of walking one by one, going through these people and getting closer and closer to me, and you know like these grown women are fainting, mm-hmm. falling down, and uh, you know people are convulsing, all this kind of stuff, and he you know finally came to me. And I told him what was wrong. I think I told him I had a stuffed up nose. (laughs) And I remember him uh, putting his hand on my nose. And uh, at at this point in my life, I am 100% an atheist. At at 10? No, no, no. Right now, as we speak. Yes. Okay. In, In the year of our Lord, right. 2014. <laughs> Interestingly right. put. Right. <clears throat> um, but at, at that time, I, you know, I was a kid. I believed what my parents believed. And so even from my perspective now as believing that this is all nonsense, I distinctly remember feeling when he put his hand on my nose. Uh, it was like electricity went through his hand into my nose and cleared everything out. Hmm. Like totally cleared everything out. And I breathed clearly <laughs> through my nose, which I could almost never do. Uh, so that's strange. I can't explain that. Mm-hmm. That I definitely had that experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also know that he pushed me. He tried to make me fall down. Right. And I didn't. Right. But I remember thinking at that time uh, that that was lame. That he tried to push you down. <laughs> that that was sort of my cue. I was right. supposed to Right. That it didn't down. happen like a shock from heaven. Right. That it happened from his forearm. Right. Yeah. So it, it's a, that's an interesting memory for me because that it, that you know, it I works. experienced something I don't believe in. Right. <laughs> and I also saw the, you know, the fakery right. at the same time. Yeah. I'm really interested so. to get into the subject with you because I, I, I didn't, we talked about this a little bit a while ago and then I cut it off because I think I actually said I wanted to talk about it yeah. on the record. And um, I didn't grow up in as, in as crazy a, a situation as that. Mine was the same amount of time in church, but without the speaking in tongues uh-huh. and um, just right on the very underlying border of that. I think if somebody would have done that in, in my church, that people would have been a little freaked out, but uh-huh. it would have also been like, oh, that's a happening that happened, you know, that, but, you know, m- my experience that, and the people who know me and via Open G and stuff and my writing and shit is that. I virulently, angrily, like, rejected still. I'm, like, just a ball of anger about 
religion and Christianity and the, the way that I was brought up in particular. And you were brought up more uh, pungently than that. And you were able to now be much more circumspect and kind of like let it go. What, what do you think in your in your experience allowed allows you to just like say, well, that's just part of my life that Hmm. that doesn't affect you know because you believed you believed enough that like you were there that your nose cleared up and yeah. i believe too you know it's like yeah. no well, I, re- I mean i remember praying as a kid and yeah. you know, believing uh you know believing that i was talking to somebody mm-hmm. you know that was listening and that cared <clears throat> that's a um, nice feeling you know to, yeah. to feel like somebody like really loves you and is like really cares about you even if you can't yeah, touch them in a way. Yeah, I miss it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, um, so I mean, I, I remember how I uh, got out of it actually, and that was, um, uh, <laughs> so I I went to a summer camp. I never uh, went away from home for long periods of time. Uh, but the first summer camp I went to, I was, uh, 15 years old and I met a girl and fell madly in love with her and she was Jewish. And my, uh, I remember my grandmother, uh, I talked to her about, I talked to my grandmother about this girl that I've had and, uh, I remember her saying that she's, you know, she's probably a lovely girl, uh, but, you know, she doesn't believe and she would go to hell. And, you know, and I shouldn't get involved with, you know, you can't, it's sort of like marrying out, but, you know, right. 15, yeah. nobody's getting married, but the idea of uh, getting involved romantically with somebody who was not a Christian was not a good idea. And she even pointed out a specific passage in the new Testament that said that I think it's in Hebrews. It says that God has placed a veil over the eyes of the Jews such that they cannot see. So the question was, why don't the Jews believe in Jesus? Right. And so Paul said, well, God has lowered this veil over their eyes and they can't. So, so don't take a sidebar. Let's take a sidebar for a moment. Fucking Paul. Like, if you left all of that shit out of the end of the New Testament and just sort of had, like, the Gospels and maybe some of Acts, you're probably cool. It's this crazy-ass, misogynist, self-loathing homosexual who just, like, writes pages and pages of angry shit to people it's and that's like what people believe. That's like if people give you stuff from the from the New Testament, it's not from the Gospels. Normally, you right. get it from something that Paul wrote, and it's just, it just drives me yeah, crazy. That's the exact thing you're talking about. I remember for a period referring to when I was thinking about it, referring to it as Paulianity. I insisted on calling it Paulianity right. instead of Christianity. That's yeah, weird because Paul's a Jew, uh, you know, uh, and, to, and to like to be completely like. To dismiss your people and say that they they all like I got the wisdom and they all have blinds over their but eyes. But I think now. that's exactly why, right? Because he was a Jew that converted and then hated where he came from. 
I mean, I, I think. Yeah, yeah. So. Maybe he's more like me than I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, from the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, like Jesus calls Gentiles dogs. Uh, you know, he says they're not worth the scraps from the, the, the master's table. And the master, in this case, are the Jews. You know, Jesus is very clear. Yeah. You know, uh, he's not all love and forgiveness and everybody's welcome. That's Paul. Like Something Paul that made me angry recently, and it's another part of the same sidebar, is re- read a passage from the, from the Bible where Jesus is talking. I, I don't have it in front of me, obviously. We could Google it or whatever, but we're not going to... Where he's like, if you love your mother more than me, then you're not worthy of right. me. And if you love your son more than me, then you're not worthy of me. And I'm just like, fuck you. Because I just, if you ask me to love somebody more than I love Saul, it's just, I don't even know you. He was, you know, I can't even, I can't, I can't talk to you. I can't see you. I'm supposed to love you. That was the thing for me that I think crushed me is that I couldn't figure out how to love Somebody that I didn't know, uh-huh. and you're supposed to, with everything, right? And I just, I couldn't figure it out, and it made me feel like I, I was doing it wrong, mm-hmm. like I, like I couldn't, <clears throat> I wasn't worthy enough to find the truth, which was that God would speak to me if I was faithful enough, mm-hmm. and I was, I really believed it, and I tried. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's sort of the root of my hurt is that I there was a something about being unworthy that's interesting because for me I, I felt like it came out of what i perceived to be a failure in the christian system well i didn't see it as a failure myself i saw specifically this you know again this situation you know here i am i'm a 15 year old kid for the first time in my life i fall in love with a nice girl and and you know it's that it's that first love experience where you Especially, you know, we're talking about losing parents, you know, so I did not have a, my my primary female figure was gone mm. at that point. And I had this experience where I feel like I'm not alone in the in the world, right? Here's this person I connect with on such mm-hmm. a fundamental way. And I'm told that because of like, you know, a technicality, not only will she be... <laughs> doomed to you know eternal torment but she is incapable of rectifying it because she's a jew my god created a situation where she can't right so she's screwed no matter what yeah so and I, she I might just, drag you down with her i mean i guess that's the idea right like that's why you don't yeah i i asked my mom straight up one time that you know by what you really believe your son, who you love, who's a good person, who's been faithful to you and is is not an evil person in the slightest, is going to burn for eternity. Is that cool? Is that what you believe? <laughs> and she couldn't answer the question. I never got an answer from her out while, while she was alive. Um, I just don't know how how you make that math work. It just it, but. I'm fascinated that you're like circumspect and I'm like a ball of anger and rage. I mean, I think I think people know that they're believing something that isn't lot it's not logically consistent. <clears throat> um, but that's okay because it that's what it is. It's a belief. It's mm-hmm. you accept this thing uh with all of its warts and 
whatever. It's a decision you make and then you live with the consequences. And I, I think we all do that. You know, like we don't mm-hmm. necessarily do it by choosing to be, you know, a charismatic Christian, but we make life choices that have consequences and we deal with them. Even when our life experiences tell us that maybe we should do something different. <laughs> we kind of stick to what we know mm-hmm, or we stick mm-hmm. to uh, the path that we chose or something. We started something and now we have to finish it. I mean, it's extreme and I think it's unfortunate and very destructive. Uh, speci- I'm thinking specifically of this sort of acceptance of what specifically charismatic Christianity mm-hmm. teaches but I don't feel like it's out of the realm of the possible for humans. I, I think it's something we do. So that, maybe that's sort of why I don't. Yeah. I read a quote. Hate it. Even yesterday. I, I, I'm trying to remember who it was. And the quote was morality is doing what's right. No matter what you're told. Hmm. And religion is doing what you're told. No matter what <laughs> is right. Interesting. Uh, the, whether you believe that or not is what it, so, uh, let's, uh, let's actually move into some musical, uh, All right. and, uh, and Having so much fun delving into my, no, I, sorted <laughs> well, I actually, you know, for me, that's the interesting stuff about, yeah. you know, it's like, I, I, I could listen to other podcasts and be like, so where did you get the inspiration for this piece? And unfortunately we will talk about that later <laughs> on, but that's pretty much the crux of what you get. And I don't think that's what makes artists, you know, uh-huh. it's like. I find the warts and the and the everybody I think is is affected larger than they even think by their childhood and I, I, for me going through therapy and 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 trying to figure out my own sort of foibles and past I I have a real fascination with and belief that 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 kind of experience really colors no matter how old you get it colors the rest of your life you can't you can't ever be more influential than things happen in your childhood so, speaking of slightly early influences, um, when did you start becoming interested in music? Um, <clears throat> I don't remember how old I was when I started playing, but I, but the first instrument I played was saxophone. <laughs> you don't remember how? I mean, can you give me an estimate? I was in fourth grade, but because I was in this Christian school, the grades were all wonky. <sighs> okay. So... I don't know. You were 10. <laughs> let's, call, 10? let's say you were 10. Okay. I was, I was about 10. Yeah. If not 10. So, um, yeah. And I, we, you know, it was, it was actually, a, I think what happens normally in, uh, other schools too, which is you go into some demonstration mm-hmm. that the school goes in and the, you know, the band, instruments around right, teacher yeah. says, here's what we've got. And yep. I wanted to play the drum. And, uh, my best friend at the time, uh, wanted to play the saxophone and he talked me into playing saxophone. That bastard. Yeah. So we both, uh, did that and he quit, you know, like within three months or something. (laughs) And my, my parents had, you know, signed this, however many year contract to pay 
It was probably the, nothing then, but you know, you from rent the saxophone, own, right? right? Yes. So you rent to own. They were, and the so the school was too small to support. They didn't have any instruments themselves. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to play, you had to do this rent to own program. <clears throat> so that's what they were doing, and they, you know, they said no. Nope, you, uh, you know, I wanted to quit as soon as he did, of course. And they said no. We've signed a contract, so you have to stick it out. Um, and I actually had to practice for 20 minutes a day did you play piano before any no. of that You're, so this no, is your we, first yeah that was my first instrument we had a piano in the house um let me just ask you what yeah. you did you used to play on that piano like on your own did you you know i don't remember playing on it before starting saxophone mm. it was sort of like this just piece of furniture in the hmm. house uh my sister um started playing piano around the time I started playing saxophone, I think she also quit and I wanted to know why she could quit. I couldn't. And again, the reason was they already <laughs> paid had the for piano. This. They paid for that. <laughs> so, and my mother was, I think a pretty good amateur pianist. Hmm. She never would play for us. The, the only thing she would play is the boogie woogie. Which I can still play in her version. Uh, <laughs> She's just. She was very nervous about playing for people. I think, or self conscious. Even her kids. That's yeah. funny. Uh, and her dad, my grandfather, would always want her to play. He always wanted her to play for him, and she never would. Uh, so the piano was there, and after I already was playing saxophone, and you know I learned how to read music, even though I don't actually remember doing that. Learning how to read music. Yeah, I. I don't ever remember not being able to read music, mm-hmm. but that's, I know that's when it happened. So I learned how to read music. And then I, I remember taking my sister's piano books after she quit and teaching myself how to read bass clef. And that I do remember teaching myself mm-hmm. how to read bass clef, how to, you Make know, chords. play the hands part. Yeah. And, I, and there was a guy. Triads I, and shit. I, yeah. So I played in a, in, in that church I was in, I played in their band. They had a, a worship band mm-hmm. and the guy who ran that group was an ex Marine trumpet player. <laughs> and I don't know why, maybe I asked him, maybe he just saw that I had some, aptitude i remember him telling me how to make chords um and he i don't know if he had any experience teaching but he was very good at it because hmm. i remember him i must have asked him how do how do i what's a c major triad how do i make this and what do you think was your was your uh interest in that what do you think was driving you to ask those questions i, I don't know i mean i think i was just curious mm-hmm. But I remember him. We is this sat around the same piano. like a year later, or is this like the same time? Or? I'm, I mean, I I could have been ten or eleven. Yeah. I, I don't roughly the same time. Yeah, yeah. But I remember him sitting me down and saying, "Play a scale." I played a scale, and then he said, "Now take the first, third, and fifth note of the scale, and that's how you make a chord." And that's all I knew about how to make chords. Mm-hmm. So I would play all my scales and make different chords, and somehow figured out how they work together. But by the time my mother died, so she died in December of, uh, I guess it was 1987. By that, by the time she died, I had learned enough that I had written a piece for that church band. 
And that same ex-Marine trumpet player had taught me how to make a score. And I, I, this piece that I wrote, which I just wrote by fooling around on the Was keyboard. Was this your first piece? Yeah. So I, I fooled around the keyboard, wrote this piece, told him I wrote a piece. He said, and I said, can we play it? And he said, sure, but you have to make it. Arrangement score, right. right? So he showed me how to make a score. So I took all the score. Oh, you had already on. written all the parts and stuff. No, I I just played it for him on the I piano. See, I see. And he said, but if you want the band to play it, the band has to have separate parts. The flute has to do something, and the oboe has to do something. By the way, the clarinet doesn't look like it sounds. FYI, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, he might, I don't I don't know where that score is. I must have written it in a trans. I must have written a transpose score. Do you I think you have I it anywhere? Know. Do you think it exists in your collection Probab- somewhere? No, probably uh, not. That would be so worth finding. Because he might have a copy of it. Uh, you should get it. But anyway, I wrote. He showed me how to do it, and and he thought like, like that'll that'll get him off my back. And apparently, the next week I showed up, and I said, "Okay, here's the score." And I had, I didn't know anything, but I made a full score for band of this piece with all the parts. And he said, okay, well, that's great, but now you have to make individual parts. So he told me how to make the individual So next week, I came Pre-finale. back and I had all the... Yeah, everything oh, by hand, God, of course. part extract would be awesome. Yeah. So I made the parts and came back the next week, and then he didn't have any choice. I did all this work. <laughs> so he played the piece, and that was the last thing that my mother went to. Interesting. Was like, that concert. Uh, for that last piece. public event of any sort. Yeah. Hmm. Was that piece... And you didn't know she was sick yet, except for the headaches. Right. You're saying. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, after you wrote this first piece, sort of out of your own spark of creativity, did you write soon thereafter? Did you find that you liked doing it? You're like, I'd like to do that. Let, let me make another thing. Yeah. So, I that, that was it. I started writing then, and I haven't stopped yet. So, did you start writing like a bunch of stuff for the same group of people? Yeah. So I wrote a number of things for them. So you're still like 12 when you're doing it. So it's very early. And it was all large ensemble. Right. That's kind of interesting. Is yeah. That, that was my only access, mm-hmm. you know, to anything at that point. So all I was writing for was, I mean, I wrote, I don't, you know, 20 pieces for band, mm-hmm. essentially, over, you know, a number of years. Um. And I and I started playing. Then I got good enough at the saxophone that I was playing in professional groups. Were you listening to classical music at this point, or yeah? So at church some point, music or what? At some point, I got really interested in classical music, and the way it happened was that we had LPs sitting around the house, and for whatever reason, the ones I wanted to listen to were, you know recordings from the 1966 Tchaikovsky concerto competition <laughs> and an amazing recording of Bernstein doing Till Eulenspiegel. Oh, I know that recording. And on the opposite, talking about why it's funny. No, I don't have... Uh, oh. I listen to that constantly. Oh, I would love to hear that. It's really good. I, I, I have a very soft spot for Leonard Bernstein. I yeah. think that his stuff is so cool and yeah. so good. Um, So, it, it's, it's funny. I, I did one of these interviews with... Uh, David Glazer, who's, I told you, was the other guy who's written me a concerto. And he, when he was growing up, they only had two records in the house, and it was Ina Klein and Nach music and the Rite of Spring. So, <laughs> <laughs> and he just listened to them constantly. And when you when nice. that when you know that 
things start to make sense about the way that he writes or writes music. Um, so you were listening to some classical music. Um, at, at, is there like a performance or, or, or like a moment where you go, you know, I, I kind of think this is what I want to do. So I remember <clears throat> a few pieces I remember very clearly being extremely important. Um, one was In the Steps of Central Asia by Borodin. Mm -hmm. And is that, I, I is that where the Polovetsian dances come from? Is it? Uh, no, it's a standalone piece, hmm. but it was actually on a, re on a record with the dance. Great performances. The CD, I think, had that, Maybe. or record of tapes. I, Jesus, I'm I don't so remember old. who performed that. I'm pretty sure that, it, it, at least on the R Russian classics, great performances label that that was on the same yeah. same thing but i was just obsessed with paul bass and dances because it had an yeah. awesome clarinet part. yeah that's right <laughs> so that was one so that was one was it the orchestration of that or just that it was cool or um there was a time <clears throat> that i re i remember i'm sure it didn't actually happen this way but i remember there being a time where i li listened to that every day before going to school hmm. so i would wake up in the morning i, I had my ba my bedroom was in the basement of the house so I kind of was separated from everybody else. So I could do things like put on a record at six o'clock in the morning. And I, I just remember playing that, always listening to that. It was sort of like morning prayers or something, mm -hmm. listening to that piece and then going. And I, I mean, I think it was just the, the clarity of the structure. So the, you know, the, so it starts with this high pedal E in the strings and if you if you don't pay attention, you never know when it disappears, and then it shows up again at the end. So mm. it gives the impression of constantly being there over the eight minutes or so that the piece lasts. It's not, but that was a fun thing to see if I could concentrate on it to to tell exactly when it disappeared mm -hmm. and then when it came back. So that was something I loved about it. And then the tunes there are two main tunes, and in the middle those two tunes combine. So it's, you know, mm -hmm. very, very clear counterpoint. And with melodies that you already know and you yes, can see how they fit and together. And realizing that, you know, that you can do that with tunes. Mm -hmm. You can take them and put them together. I think 1812 Overture was the first time that I realized that yeah. in the end or and then, in the and middle or something or maybe Marsh Slav or something where the same melody comes and you know, you're like, oh shit. You just put those two things together and it totally works. Yeah. Another piece like that for me was the slow movement from Beethoven 7. I listen oh. to Beethoven 7 all the time. Well, okay. Now, yeah. see, at first I was like, serious musician being influenced similarly by Borodin. But, uh, you know, I still love Borodin. Uh, listen, I, mean, I can't hate on best it. Best tunes. Great um, tunes. But Beethoven 7 makes a little bit more yeah. sense. But that, again, it was hearing that how it how it worked you know i remember i remember very clearly sitting on my bed listening to it and hearing you know here's the tune and here's the counterpoint and here's the ostinato and here's this and how it all build up into this frenzy and then all of it gets dispelled with the, a great clarinet solo <laughs> when it moves to the of a course. major everything no. gets dispelled with a great clarinet solo <laughs> um so, uh, you, you listen, were there any live performances that you went to that you were like, 
That's awesome, too. Or was it mainly recorded stuff that you were listening to? Most of my exposure to music was by recordings. Um, the Harrisburg Symphony was nearby, because mm-hmm. I grew up near there. So it's it's really fun to go back, you know. I hadn't uh, thought about how, them, how but... cool it'll be. You've done a few things with them, and we'll talk about that coming up, but... Sort of like, oh, no matter how old you are, doing something for your hometown yeah. is pretty sweet. It's fun. Yeah. It's, it's really great. You know, it's kind of like what LeBron went back to Cleveland. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that and $137 yeah, million. Yeah, he got paid a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine $137 million to conduct an orchestra or to play your clarinet? It, yeah. It's mind-blowing what kind of money these guys know. Yeah. Um, Right, I one of maybe it was my first concert was uh, seeing George Bollet come and play a Liszt concerto with Harrisburg. Mm-hmm. I remember that, and I also remember one of my clearest memories of a piece was when the Philly Orchestra was on tour and they came and they played in the Forum in Harrisburg. Uh-huh. Yuri Temerkanov was. Is that like the big like um, farm like WPA? Well, that, that no, that's where we're going to play. That's where the concerto will be in the forum. Oh yeah, where they always play. Cool. Yeah. So the Philly Orchestra was there, and they did the Tchaikovsky Serenade for strings. Hmm. And I, I just that's one of the first pieces I remember hearing once, and it like seared itself into my memory. Well, hearing that string section too, that's just and so phenomenal, strings, right? and just yeah, that could really cut you yeah. really, really, really close. I think. Do you hear the hot uh, somebody? To hear people playing at a really high level, doing anything at a really high level is mind-blowing. But to hear the first real, really quality professional, you're just like, yeah. oh, oh, okay. So, um, you end up going to college for music. So how did, you know, you went to Eastman, is that correct? Yes. Um, did you go there as a composition student or? Yeah. So, and I only knew about, you know, we didn't know anything. My, you know, my mother was gone, but my dad was very supportive. You Were know. you playing a different instrument by yeah, this time? Yeah, so by that time, <clears throat> so I taught myself piano to the point where I could sort of hack through repertoire. And that's what I would do. You know, just get books of piano music and play it. Mm-hmm. Um but my last year in high school, I think, or last two years, I did take piano lessons. Um, and by that time, I had switched from saxophone to oboe. Now, why did you make that switch? Just because, you know, nobody played the oboe, and I was a good sax player, and my the band teacher knew I could, you know, pick up a different instrument. My brother had the quickly. exact same switch to bassoon. It's, yeah, it's free. Right. That's yeah. why people play bassoon. And yeah, right. Think. Hey, you can make regional band... Yeah, because there's this. no one else that plays right. in Virginia Beach. Yeah, right. Yeah, so that so I was playing oboe, and when I auditioned at Eastman, I I I wanted to go as a composition major, but I auditioned for the oboe professor who I wound up studying with. So I auditioned for Richard Kilmer, and I auditioned on piano because I knew that piano was more important as a composer than mm-hmm. than oboe. So I auditioned for the piano faculty. Uh, to be a piano primary is what they called it. And then I auditioned to, for the, to the composition faculty to be a composition major. 
and that's what I wound up doing. So composition major, piano was my primary study, and then oboe was called secondary, but the way it worked out <coughs> is that they, uh, one of the oboists left the studio for my year. She transferred to a different school, and so there was a hole in the studio, and so uh, Kilmer stuck me into the orchestra rotation, which was amazing. Like You know, it was really fun. Yeah. Uh, so your colleague was, was smart, right? Your, your Eastman colleague was smart because Eastman fucking sucks. <laughs> What's the matter with Eastman? <laughs> I'm just just busting out my Indiana. Uh, oh, anytime oh, there's another school of music, I have to like I have to shit on it for oh, a little okay. while before. Just as long as you as long as you didn't go to the University of Michigan at any point, we're not. we're good to go. No. Um, so. You, you, you were there basically to compose, play piano, and then you did a lot more oboe playing than you anticipated, but right. that was that was cool with you. Yeah. Um, is there is there a certain point during that that you're really like, okay, I can make a career, really making a career out of composing, or were you trying to build sort of a... Yeah. Or were you even thinking strategically yeah, at that point? Yeah, I was definitely not thinking strategically. Just I didn't start doing that doing until stuff. last week, actually. <laughs> so. No, I, um, <clears throat> I... Composition was always number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for as long as I remember, after starting to do it. So that I knew was going to be my primary focus and would continue to be past that. I don't think I ever really entertained the idea of being like a freelance oboist. Um, and to be a pianist is just crazy. I mean, that's like... Yeah, I mean, I never I never even wanted to play a concerto, for right, instance. Like, right. that's just not something I want to do, and I certainly am not... Nobody's asking me to do it. <laughs> so, But I did a lot of accompanying while I was there. I, I, I felt like that was a useful skill to have. So, in addition to... All, to the playing I was doing regularly, I, I started playing for uh, singers, mm-hmm. you know, like for studios, for lessons and this kind of thing. Just because I, th- I felt like I should be able to sight read, you know, and that's one thing that pianists are known for not being able to do. Really? Sight yeah. read? I'm interested. So. I didn't know that. I figured that pianists could just, you lay something out in front of them and they just throw it down on you and you're just like... They should. And and the good, you know, the good ones can. Yeah. But, yeah, that's, I think, that's kind of a stereotype that they... Can't they, they don't play chamber music often, uh-huh. you know, so they just sort of are in their own world. And it makes me feel better because I can't sight read for shit. Yeah. Um, so, did you end up going to graduate school for one particular thing, or yeah, and that that was a real, real change. Uh, so I went from Eastman, which is a conservatory, and it was you know music from you know seven a.m. until eleven p.m. And everybody I associated with was, you know, any girlfriends I had were musicians, mm-hmm. you know, friends were musicians. Yeah, it's a very everything. self-contained environment, yeah. yeah. And then I moved to Philly to go to Penn to study with George Crumb and privately to study with George Rockberg, who mm-hmm. had retired. And Penn is pure, like, is straight up an academic mm-hmm. music program. There's no undergraduate performance at all mm-hmm. not, no performance major um, and all of my colleagues at that point were uh, 
theorists, historians, ethnomusicologists. Dudes who couldn't hack it. Oh! Pencil pushers. Yeah, I mean, like, so it was... I went from being in the most musical environment imaginable to the least musical. Most egghead music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, The good news was that, you know, I that I was in a major city. So I wound up, uh, playing, you know, again, accompanying singers doing this sort of thing. And through a very strange set of circumstances, wound up being the assistant conductor in Harrisburg. So I would drive from Philly to Harrisburg. For okay. So let's thing. take a sidebar on that. So all of a sudden you're a conductor. <laughs> well, so, well, yeah, actually, yes. So, uh, I did some at Eastman. I, I did it first. I think like a lot of composers by doing my own music Mm -hmm. and somebody asked me, uh, her name was Erin Albinsky. She's an oboist. And she asked me to conduct a piece on her recital. So I, you know, I didn't, I didn't know anything. I didn't know. I didn't know how to conduct. Mm -hmm. So I said, sure. And, I can make a 4-4 four, four pattern. <laughs> That's right. So the first piece I conducted <clears throat> that wasn't mine was Quiet City by Aaron Copeland. Mm-hmm. She played English horn and the trumpet player, this is amazing, was Chris Martin, who's now a principal trumpet in the Chicago Symphony. <laughs> so that was my first... Yeah, that's a good gig. My first experience... Nice. Uh, ...conducting. And, you know, it was fun. It was great. That's just strings, right? No. It's strings and... Solo trumpet, solo English right. Um Yeah, so I did that, and I really enjoyed it. So I wound up doing an independent study with the conductor of the University of Rochester Orchestras. So my last year at Eastman, I was his assistant. So I had some experience doing, um, you know, standard rep with him. Moved to Philadelphia, won a BMI award, a composer award. And because I'm a local guy from Harrisburg, the Harrisburg paper called, interviewed me, wrote an article about me winning this award. And the then conductor of the Harrisburg Symphony was Richard Westerfield. His wife read the newspaper, said, Rick, you ought to know this kid. He's from Harrisburg. So I got a phone call from the conductor of the Harrisburg Symphony saying, why don't you come have lunch with me? You know, of course, I said... I'd love to. Yeah. So I went to Harrisburg. We had lunch, talked. I told him I was really interested in conducting. And he said, I need an assistant. How would you like to be it? And I said, cool. Great. Well, that works. And perfectly. that's how that happens. So, so yeah, all of a sudden I'm the assistant conductor of a professional orchestra. Right. Again, knowing nothing. Right. So. Now, this sort of leads me into your current, not to like gloss over 20 years of your life or whatever, 15 years, but now... Um, I know you as obviously as a composer, you, you do a lot of conducting and you do a lot of piano playing. Any one of those things is a pretty specific career to have. How in the hell do you juggle that kind of thing? First of all, if, well, let me ask you this first. Is there one of those things that you think you're the best at that you feel personally that is your, your wheelhouse? Well, um, again, always composition is first, so it always has been, and that's like that's that's who I am. Like I'm a composer, mm-hmm. so 
um, no matter what else is happening, I'm working on a piece, either preparing <clears throat> to write something or actively writing something. Um, conducting, uh, I, I love to do it. I, I think I'm a better conductor than I am a pianist. Um, it's, it's a harder, uh, it's a harder thing to do with regularity. So I, it takes so much like craft work. I mean, it takes yeah, I mean, so you much. Can't, like, you can't practice really. Right. Right. Cause you, you can only, you learn, you learn it while you do it. There's so many hours during the day Yeah, for you. And you don't have an orchestra sitting around. Right. So you can study scores and I do that all the time as a composer. Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, I'm learning scores, maybe not in the same detail that I learn them when I'm going to conduct them, but I'm always, you know, looking at something, thinking about some piece, studying it. Um, so that, those are very related that way. Um, but with, you know, with, with conducting, basically I, I do it when I have the opportunity to do it. And that often means new music. Mm -hmm. Um, which is again, just fun and interesting to be looking at, uh, my colleagues scores and figuring out how they put things together, what works, what doesn't work. Um, and then with piano, I basically, I think this is true. I basically don't practice unless I have something to do. So like right now I'm practicing, you know, three hours a day, maybe because I'm playing a recital in two weeks. Um, That's a healthy amount of practice a day. I was, I'm, I'm surprised to hear but that. I, but I can go like, weeks without practicing at all or, right. or even months you know mm -hmm. like not even playing oh, a note let me just take a second to imagine nice. how lovely that would feel <laughs> so actually i'm going to take another sidebar i would I, I i've been having this recurring pain in my rib cage in my chest which of course i uh, uh assume means that i have a massive tumor and lung cancer <laughs> so <laughs> i went to the doctor you know to be like hey i have a massive tumor and yeah. lung cancer can you help me and he's like are you're, you're playing your clarinet and i was like yeah i'm really kicking ass he's like you don't have lung cancer and then and then so it, what he says is that i've chronically strained the muscles in between the ribs mm -hmm. in my rib cage by practicing your piece yeah. and he's like what you really need to do is take Advil three times a day and take two weeks off. And I was like, not going to be able to do it. <laughs> so after I after we give your your premieres, I am literally under doctor's orders to take a week <laughs> off, and I cannot wait. I'm just sitting here dreaming of not having to practice during the course of the day. Um, I just like having been a, a road warrior when I when I worked in Greenville, North Carolina, at East Carolina University. Really, to get any quality playing, you have to drive an hour and a half to Raleigh, unless you create it at the university. I know you must be that now still. You must drive all the time yeah. to put that kind of conducting and playing career together, yeah? Yeah. I, that's something that I don't think people realize about musicians, is about how much of a grind and like just you have to drive at least 45 minutes to get here and it's going to be an hour and a half to get yeah. there for $150 and then you're going to go yeah. here for this. Yeah, you often work to pay the cost of getting to work. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's such 
the road warrior lifestyle is such a grind, and at the same time, it's like it. It feels right for a musician to be like out there doing the same thing that Mozart did. They're doing the same thing that yeah. generations of musicians have busted ass to go play for somebody who doesn't pay them enough money. Yeah. Um. Let me ask you about your process of writing. Do you? Do you set aside time daily to write, or do you have a set time that you're like, I write between this and this? So that's my ideal, and I'm pretty good when I'm home. I'm good at st- sticking to it. It's tough for... And what is that ideal? I mean, what's away, your... But, uh, basically, around 8 o'clock in the morning, you know, like I start at You're eight. an early riser? Or yeah. You... And, uh, you know, my wife goes... She has a normal day job, mm-hmm. uh, so she's usually walking out the door by seven thirty or something, seven forty-five. Basically, when she leaves, I—that's uh, start... when I would start to party. Yeah, be like, yeah, I'm by myself. Yeah. Yeah. So you start writing at eight, yeah, and you basically go until lunch, and um, that that can mean a lot of things. So that almost never means that I have a pencil on the page writing notes for four hours. Yeah. Um, what other stuff do you do during that time? So a lot of, I do a lot of, um, research for pieces. I, mean, I don't know what else to call it. But, um, so for instance, right now I'm starting a trio for flute and cello and harp Oof. that will be done at the Barnes foundation in Philly. Ugh. And it's why, <laughs> It's a commission. Oh, yeah. And I love the Barnes Foundation. And I I love this particular mural by Matisse. And that's sort of the inspiration for the piece. So I'm reading, you know, Matisse's biography and (laughs) a book by Jack Flam on this particular work and a book of essay, collected writings of Matisse. I'm researching, trying to find the farandole that he apparently whistled while he was painting the thing uh you know and then sort of what what it led to in his art and all of this stuff and i mean it's it's really fun like i love that part of of composing but i often wind up with uh you know just either pages and pages of notes that that may result in like a phrase you know, mm-hmm. for the piece, uh, or I'll spend a whole lot of time doing something that is that turns out not to be useful at all. So, this opera that I just wrote, I was telling you that the the playwright references H.P. Lovecraft is sort of like a, um, a sort of psychological thriller tale writer mm-hmm. like Poe. So he mentions H.P. Lovecraft. So of course I got to figure out who is this guy, where did he live, what are his influences, and read all these stories. You know, I'm only familiar with the Call of Cthulhu or yeah, whatever right. that yeah, is. That's one of the famous because kids are are obsessed with that kid. At, at, that. In, uh, online, they're obsessed with that that big sleeping giant. Yeah, so I I read all these tales and and I wound up cutting all references to H.P. Lovecraft mm-hmm. out of the opera and. You know, there's just nothing. And the only thing that came out of that were the whippoorwills that found their way into your Into my piece. That's funny. Because I was thinking about that opera <laughs> as I was writing the concerto. So, so. would you... So, all, a lot of that sounds like, to me, like external uh, 
external sort of pokes towards internal creativity. Is yeah. that generally how you work? You, yeah. you, you're inspired yourself by external ideas yeah, that you so. turn into yourself, your own. Yeah. So I just, it's like, it's almost like throwing, you know, like a massive net out. I sort of know what area of the sea, like I'm aiming at, but I'll throw a massive net out, pull in whatever comes in and throw out, you know, maybe 85, 90% of what is there. Mm-hmm. And is this before you've started to write a note or are you like, just kind of like, yeah. So you, you, you conceive of the idea and then you start. Yeah. So for instance, with the clarinet concerto, I knew, I, I think before I started, I knew it was about the night as a companion to the oboe concerto, which is about the day. Um, I knew that. I knew that I wanted to uh, start in the shallow mo and end in the clarino. Mm-hmm. So to have those poles. Oh, you went in the altissimo, motherfucker. <laughs> that ain't no clarino. Yeah, so I called it. I So this is the other thing that I do all the time is I modify the facts to see. <laughs> so I call. I yeah, call it's totally this, doable. <laughs> it's no problem. I call shallow mo. For this piece, I call shallow mo everything from the throat B flat down. That's pretty accurate. And everything from the B, mm-hmm. a half step above up, I call clarino. Mm, interesting. So I, I just have those two areas. Yeah. Oh, yes. And then the middle section is mixing them. Now now it all makes more and more sense to yeah. me. Uh, it's interesting because I did, I did one of these with Joan Tower, and she writes like literally completely the opposite from you. She just starts uh-huh. and then sees where it goes. She's like, I really admire people who are able to conceive of a framework. She's like, I'm just not that bright. I can't do it. So I just no, start to write. Bright. Right? She I mean, this is... She's, <clears throat> she's, she's an interesting person. I'm, I'm fascinated that, that your your techniques are almost completely opposite. It's it's really... Yeah, I have a number of friends that do that. You know, it's sort of like... You start writing a book and see where the characters Yeah, take they just you. throw it all out and sort of see what's there. I think I would need more of a framework. I've only written a few things. Um... But I, I I can't. I have to have some idea of what I'm doing before I do it because yeah. I my otherwise it, first of all nothing will ever happen, um, and then I have no form naturally. Um, so since we're talking about music, let's talk about our piece a little bit, um, and then we'll finish it out here. So, you wrote me a clarinet concerto. Oh, please. We're having some scotch here. Um, this is our th- uh, lubrication for these uh, podcasts. is generally a little bit of alcohol as we go. Um, please. Hell yeah. Thank you. Um, so, we were you were commissioned uh, to write a work, a clarinet concerto for me yep. and the Harrisburg Symphony. Which I love and is awesome and thank you. Thank um, you. I really am like I'm excited. It's gonna we're gonna premiere it on the eighth and ninth, right of yep. November. November, and um, really starting to ramp up the ending of the preparation myself. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the origins of the piece because I really think it's interesting. I really think that like when and if people know what sort of the story the story of the piece is, I think it informs it in such an interesting way that it'll actually add 
to the performance rather than subtract from it. Like, yeah. you know, if you know sort of like, oh, at this point, Till Eulenspiegel is laughing and bloody bloody, yeah. then it's just like, okay, well, now it's a cartoon. But I think what you've done with the idea that came from a dream for me is more sophisticated than I originally <laughs> had thought. So, <clears throat> back to the beginning. You're, we're talking about a commission for an Eclairna concerto. We're talking about the original ideas for it, and I have a dream. Yeah. Um, totally unrelated, but in the end, completely related to how we work together, which is I dreamed of a clarinet player who everyone was talking about, including my friend Scott, who never talks about other clarinet players. So I knew that this guy had to be legit. But the thing about this clarinet player is that he refused to play anything out of diatonic C major. Sees a C flat, he plays a C. He sees a C sharp, he plays a C. He just refuses to do it, but he's so good that everybody had to hear him. And he's so good that when he played, everybody swore that they could hear the implied accidentals. Mm. And that's sort of like the germ of what I came up with. And so... And you didn't even tell me about the dream. You posted it on Facebook. Oh, really? Is that what happened? Yeah. <laughs> so you just, I just see this post <laughs> that says, you know, I had a dream about this guy. He was such a great player. And he only played C major, but he was such a great player that... Everybody had to hear. And then I wrote to you. That's a funny I, idea. And I said, what was he playing? Oh, right. And you said some Boulez and Nielsen. Mm -hmm. and In I, particular, the top of the second page. And Yeah, and I didn't page. tell you what I was thinking about. I just said, what was he playing? Right. And then I said, you know, specifically what? And you said you, you remembered the exact moment in the Nielsen. Yeah, yeah. And you described it as the first really densely chromatic passage where the snare drum goes mad. Yes. So, you know, I went and got the passage and decided that I was going to, at some point in the piece, do that. <laughs> so have you play that passage, which is only, I think, four bars. Yeah. It's four bars uh, that every clarinet player works on for a long-ass <laughs> time. Because it's the first, you know... You, 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 the Nielsen is like, it's an early bar. Uh, when I say early, I mean college age, sort of late high school, college age bar of can you, are you this tall? Uh -huh. And so that's the first like really gnarly, really world-class difficult passage that a lot of clarinet players sort of like hit upon. Well, that explains why I have so much tough high stuff because <laughs> that was sort of my starting point that's the first thing i was thinking about was that was that passage, passage. yeah yeah so let's talk about like how how when i say sophisticated you know i just had this idea of this guy who plays in c major yeah. you took that idea first of all of a dream and right. of this idea of the what we now you and i call white notes that yeah. is to say notes that don't have any accidentals on them and there are several things in this piece that really reflect yeah. that idea. Yeah. So that like, that becomes the whole conceit of the piece. Um, so I, I knew I wanted it to be a night piece to, so it could be a counterpart to the oboe concerto, which is the day piece. So I already knew that, but I hadn't thought specifically that it would be a dream piece. There's lots of composers that write night music, you know, like Bartok had some Mozart. great night music. Mozart wrote night music. And I looked at, actually, I looked at those, Knock Musiques by by Mozart and the Nocturnes that he wrote, the Noct Nocturnos. And of course, thought about the Nocturnes by Chopin and feel and all these people. 
But what I want is very interesting. I have to say, every time I Saul, my son, has a. I'm only saying that for the for people who don't know. Obviously, you know Saul is my son. Um, has a Pandora channel that has a lot of piano music that shows up, and John Field shows up, and almost every time I'm just like, oh, that's so good. What it? Uh, yeah. It's like this weird proto romanticism yeah. that's just. It's so without affect that yeah, it's really beautiful. Yeah. I love his stuff. Sorry, <laughs> sidebar. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so what all those pieces do is they sort of evoke the the outside world right? the, of of night with its sounds and sensations and all this stuff. And when you mentioned this dream, I I went the other way and instead wanted to write a piece that was like. Finnegan's Wake, which I love. I can't get through. I can't, I can't finish. It took it. me six years, I think. Yeah. I'm not exaggerating. No, I don't. I, I totally believe you because I'm not finished with Ulysses yet, and it's been about the same time. I can't even like Finnegan's Wake. Just like makes my butt hurt. Yeah. I can't even get. Yeah, I mean it does. You know, it's just it's fun if you read. You know, two pages. Every right. I have to read week. Ulysses <laughs> with like three concordances because yeah. it's like I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. And I'm just, I had the Edith Hamilton mythology book always by my side yeah and there's an edition that lists the uh sections of the book by myth mm. which i found incredibly useful so I would oh yeah i know that i know that each that like each chapter sort of informally has like um one's calypso mm-hmm. one's, you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. yeah. i mean it's just like it's a massive massive work of genius yeah. that's like so beyond my capacity to you know, like the fourth chapter is like basically an homage to like going out in the backyard, taking a shit, and then like <laughs> making some like kidney sausages right. or something. Right? Yeah, frying that's, up a liver, I think. Right. That's the, no, I think it's kidneys because he talks about like the, the piss smell and all this uh, kind of stuff, you know. And I, yeah, I remember reading that passage and talk, I was talking to a friend who I would always recommend books to. And he hated almost every book I ever read. <laughs> but I told him, like, guess what happened, you know, in the past 80 pages or whatever of this book. He said, why? So he took a dump and then he went and bought some, you know, kidneys yeah. and fried them. Right. Oh, that sounds awesome. <laughs> I, I want to read 80 pages about that. <laughs> anyway, okay. so so I wanted to write a piece that was about the internal world. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's all sort of based on dreams and sleep cycles that's sort of how the piece is organized so there are bookends the first one is you playing in the bottom register of the clarinet and then the end is you playing in the top register of the clarinet and you could think of those two sections as being lulled to sleep and being awakened at the end Mm -hmm. and they're relatively short the first section is about four minutes the last section is about two and a half i think and then the middle the middle you know 17 18 minutes of the piece is for me is totally happening in your head mm-hmm. um, and uh the way it works is that it's based on uh the stages of sleep just as an organizational principle so uh 
stage one, let me see if I remember what I did. Stage one is always the woodwinds. Stage two is always the brass. Mm. Stage three is always the I didn't strings. know that they actually had... I knew that we were going through different stages, but I didn't know that they had corresponding Yeah, they're all, always orchestrationally based. And then rem is percussion. Mm. So those are the four stages. And there are also um, tonalities associated with them as well. So you would you could have a white note uh, section, you can have a densely chromatic section, you can have a whole tone section. Um, <clears throat> Those seem to be the three big sort of substrata that, that you're dealing with. Yeah. What Notes with no accidentals, totally diatonic, whole tone, fucking crazy chromatic. Yeah, right. So... Yeah, so those are the four corresponding um, tonalities, uh, so to speak. And basically, uh, because... So, again, I do all this research. So I, I was rereading Freud's Interpretation of Dreams. Uh, and he has a section at the beginning where he talks about where do dreams come from. Uh, and, the you know, the idea then... I don't know what the current scholarship says, but... Was that it, you know dreams can be inspired by all kinds of things that happen in the physical world. So uh, you're you're sleeping, and outside a siren goes off, and you dream about something related to the siren. The, the sound you don't you're not consciously aware of it, but somehow it enters into your your dreaming mind and influences the dreams that you have. So. The clarinet is always one step behind the orchestra. So when the <laughs> when the first stage of sleep happens, it's the oboes and their the two oboes and English horn. They're chromatic. The clarinet is still in the introduction. Stage two, the trumpets come in, their whole tone. The clarinet is now chromatic like the oboes were. Mm -hmm. Stage three, the strings come in, their white note, the clarinet is now whole tone. So it's always one step behind mm -hmm. the orchestra. And the, the spot where you get to sort of clean clean out and catch up is when the percussion comes in because they're, they're almost always pitchless. Just until the end, you have pitchless percussion. So you have cymbals. You just ones. have like the... The chimes at the end, right? Right. So the chimes and the celesta and the timpani. Oh, the chimes. I'm not even thinking section. about celesta as a percussion yeah. instrument. Yeah, actually. I treat it as one here. That's the only time the celesta plays in the pieces in that section. Mm -hmm. So yeah, <clears throat> that's the sort of transformational part where, it's, and and what kind of happens as the piece goes on, I think, is that dream, the dream world and the real worlds blended and you sort of lose track of what's what and that's when all those other quotations and things are coming in you hear the nielsen you hear the salieri and that nielsen moment is stuff. just like you know i have to say that, that that's like the only place that you sort of literally take my idea and will tell the audience that you know he has the first or both clarinet players of the orchestra play that the top of the second page of the nielsen concerto which was directly from my dream and then right after that's on the a clarinet right both orchestral clarinets are on the a clarinet i'm playing on the b flat clarinet and i play it 
on the instrument in the wrong key, well, in the starting in the wrong place because I'm a half step high to start out with, and then completely in C major, and then you white note it. Just yeah. like it's so ostentatiously like, I don't know what it's just like this big middle finger in the middle of the piece for me because it's just so. It's so weird. It's like so like. Uh, I mean, I love I love the Nielsen actually. Like, it's, oh, it's I, a great I, piece. Actually. I mean it. No disrespect. No, I don't either. I think that like the whole. I don't think the respect is in, in any part of it. It's just it's an interesting. It's an interesting idea that actually got realized. Another thing that I that I like about the orchestration that you were telling me about is that every instrument when they make their first. Entrance enters on the lowest note of their right. Horn, yeah, so that horn. yeah that came out of your your Shalmo at the beginning. So you, mm-hmm. you including me, I start on the lowest, lowest note. note. Yeah, yeah. Everybody in the orchestra, the first time they play, they start on the lowest note, and the only exception to that is the strings, who play harmonics on their lowest string right that's the lowest harmonic pretty much right i mean so yeah they 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 play different partials but they're all playing harmonics on the the lowest string so they they do that they have a little bit of a leeway there and then the um the the chimes only ever play one note and it happens to be the note that the only note that also occurs in the bernstein dances from west side story which share the program Mm-hmm. So he has the chimes play that same F sharp. Interesting. And I I knew I was doing that. I, I don't know that it has any real Did you know that was going to be on the same program? Yes. At that point, I did know that. And it could be that... They're really going to have to restrain me from coming out in the second half and taking the bass clarinet and playing like some fucking Prokofiev. I really want to come out and like play some of that's, that. That's a great part. All of the clarinet parts in the, in the Romeo and Juliet are really... Just, I love that piece so much. It makes me so happy. Um, yeah, the one there was one other thing that I was going to mention about the. Oh yeah, the the fact that it's that you decided to go with a really large orchestration yeah. is also like I'm excited about that as well. There's, well, you could tell what the triple winds. Yeah, right? triple winds with all the normal auxiliaries. So two flutes, piccolo, two oboes, English horn, two clarinets, bass. Two bassoons, uh, contra, and then four horns, three trumpets, three trombones, tuba. There are three percussionists that that have important parts. I tend not. I'm not one of these composers that has percussion hammering away from the beginning of the piece to the end. Mm-hmm. I think I use it very um, sparsely, but I want to use it very importantly. So the percussion is. Is very significant when it plays, but it you know it's not playing throughout. But you definitely need three players plus the timpanist, plus the celeste player, or yeah. And then the celeste could be played by one of the percussionists, uh, or if the orchestra has a keyboard player like the symphony does, uh, she'll play the the celeste part. Mm-hmm. But it could be played by one of the percussionists. And other stuff in the percussion section are what? Um, so. Variety of symbols, suspended symbols from high to low, a tam tam. Uh, there's a section for ratchet and two sirens. Oh, so can't wait. That what should it's gonna be should awesome. Be two fucking sirens. Two sirens. Oh, and like I, I want to play that part, that section right now, just so I can hear <laughs> the sirens wailing away behind me. Um, 
There was a question I was going to ask you about, specifically about the percussion stuff here. Yeah, so you don't have any keyboard percussion besides the chalesta. Not just the chalesta, yeah. And, and no pitch percussion except for the chimes playing that one note. Right. And the timpani, which doesn't play a lot. Again, like it, it, it when it plays, it's very important. It plays under the, the cl- orchestral clarinets when they're doing the Nielsen quote. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the snare drum is playing too. So that's the drum section. Um, besides the rolls and the and the Salieri section, right, yeah, uh, yeah, great. I you know I really, I I think the piece is really cool. I think that it's um, it's akin to some of my favorite movies that I consider to be an experience rather than like a novel or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, like the movies, uh, I don't know if you know this director, P.T. Anderson, who did There Will Be Blood. Do you know this movie oh, yeah. with Daniel Day-Lewis? And that movie for me is exactly that kind of thing. It's an experience. You don't really, like, it doesn't, as a narrative, it kind of, it works. But as just like a thing that blows your your, your hair back from start to finish, that's where it makes sense. Mm. And for me, your piece is a similar kind of situation. Uh, I, I, You know, that's not to say that P.T. Anderson does not have this major league arc of a framework that is there. But as, uh, uh, you know, my my experience playing the piece is all, always going to be very different than listening to it or studying it really or anything like that because I kind of have to be a jock up in the, up in the front and still be musical. And it's a, it, you know... It's a real experience. It's a little bit of a mind fuck getting from the front up to the back of it, but in a really, in a satisfying way. It's like, it's a, it's a bit of a puzzle that reveals itself as I keep practicing it. And so I, I, I really appreciate the piece. I'm excited about the, the premiere. I hope that when we give the premiere and there's a recording and other clarinet players hear it and see the music that they're going to want to play it and that maybe other people will want us to show up again and play yeah. it and all that kind of stuff. I, w- I just want to finish the interview on m- just a more interesting, interesting for myself, personal note. So you, again, we mentioned before you must drive a lot to yeah. do your work and stuff. When you're driving, what do you listen to? <clears throat> I hate listening to music in the car. Any music? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, if it's really late, sometimes it is, and I'm really tired, I will turn on, you know, I'll just, uh, I'll hit the scan button, actually. Uh-huh. Do you have satellite radio? <clears throat> no, just regular. I might have FM. to give that to you as a gift or something. Because... I mean, I really don't listen to it enough to... Dude, it changed that. my life so hard. It was. I just like, don't like the all, the the outside noise is too much. I love driving with the windows open, uh, so I can't often can't. So hear you don't it. listen to talk radio or anything like that. So that's what I did. I would just listen to talk radio, turn it up loud enough that I can hear it. But what I have recently discovered, and I feel like a very old man saying it, is books on tape, uh-huh. which obviously are not on tape anymore. Uh-huh. Um, well, those changed my life in a big way too. They are great. I I, I listen to all of the Harry Potter books. Yeah. That way, they're first of all amazing. I have never read one. The guy who reads, I, I know it seems weird as an adult, <laughs> but the guy who reads them is so phenomenal. Uh, 
that like I, by the end of the first one, I was so in love. I was just like, it hits me in all the right, like, you know, morality and fairness and, you know, taking care of your friends. But like, I think the first one I listened to was Dan Brown, like uh, uh, Da Vinci Code, the first uh-huh. first book on tape. And then I was like, why haven't I been doing this? Yeah, it's great. Forever. That's what kind of this stuff is, you know, podcasts and these these sort of long form interviews. Here we are, we're now into our almost 120 uh, or hour and 25 into this. These long form interviews are really uh, also people are listening to in their cars a lot because, yeah. you know, it's just like you can actually get to know someone on a level that's different than, than an NPR interview or something like that. I love, do you, so you never, so let me ask you this, when you do listen to music on your own, say at home, yeah. what do you listen to? <clears throat> um, it, it mostly I'm listening to, I guess what would be considered classical music, but it's, um, I think a big range. So anything from literally Byzantine chant and, you know, like re- realizations of ancient Greek music to, you know, stuff written yesterday. And I, that is dorky. The realizations of ancient Greek music is pretty, pretty dirty. It's really fun, though. <laughs> There's a great recording by Mel Pomene, is the name what, of the group. Mel Pomene? I don't know what it means. It means well, something. Rafi or something like that? Uh, they, they, they have reconstructed, you know, uh, scores from 500 bc or so and yeah the guy who a talked. lot of that's imaginative oh sure you know, I've, but i've looked at all the the um ancient greek uh, fragments and i've used some in pieces actually like the earliest complete pieces from the first century a.d but there are fragments from 500 bc 400 that's bc amazing to think about and what's really amazing about the First century AD piece. It's called the Sekulosh Epitaph. It sounds. Oh, I know that. I was going. I'm going to tell you a story about that in a second. It sounds like it could have been written. That's in the Norton Anthology, right? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. So that exists in the guy's office. That I. And when you're a junior at IU, you take these two. You've already taken four semesters of music history, and then you take these two massive survey courses like you know up to 1750 post 1750 with the same guy and this guy was tom matheson who found that epitaph of zekalos and it's hanging on his office wall so you go in there to talk about your shitty brahms paper or whatever you're going to write about beethoven and then you're sitting there and the guy who found and translated the thing that you saw that you're reading out of the <laughs> right. and it's just sitting there staring at you in the face it's like that when i think about ancient Greek music i think of that and, and, and yep. sitting there and having it stare me in the face while i'm talking about my five page paper yep. about the brahms clarinets <laughs> to a genius side note that guy sounds exactly like fraser crane when he talks to you right. in front of the classroom it's pretty amazing to have a musicology professor with that kind of authoritative tone that's good. in the front of class that's good to listen to. so you never listen to any like popular or rock and roll music or anything like that or so because of my upbringing in this christian uh you know church and school and everything uh we you know we nobody listened to popular music there was some christian pop but yes. it was so bad it's so that bad. i never was interested it's in it. it's got such a limited subject matter yeah you got like I, we praise you we got i'm not worthy 
and that's pretty much it. But it comes out of it. It sounds like pop music, so it comes out of music that is designed to accompany, you know, I want this girl or mm-hmm. right. So it's like the exact opposite of the, the mm-hmm. use of it is exact right. opposite of the intention. It just doesn't work at all for me. So that's that was my exposure to popular music. So I never formed a real connection to it. And I played a little bit of jazz when I played saxophone and even when I played oboe, I played some jazz, but that's again, I never really, I don't know. It just, I never made a deep connection to, I love to listen to jazz. If I'm in a bar, Mm. um, I, I, jazz makes no sense to me. Like I, I know same sort of way. Like I grew up in the religion. I, I I happen to love popular music and rock and roll because it's mainly, I found it on my own in college. Um, but jazz, I never had any contact with whatsoever until college, and still, I have I can't make heads no. or tails of it. I can't say I understand it, but I admire the musicianship. Oh, and, yeah, you know, a great improvisers, how they can con- construct. You know, in real time, they can construct on these, the fly uh, something that makes beautiful sense. structures. Yeah, and, yeah, it's very the level impressive. of musicianship at the high levels yeah. is really yeah. That's, I mean, actually listening to jazz players, even in college practice, is why I practice scales the way that I do. Because I, I realized everybody that I went into, like, you know, your your barrier exam in your sophomore year or whatever, was freaked the fuck out about playing all of their scales. But these jazz guys just play scales all day long, and mm-hmm. they don't care anything about it. And they know their instruments back backwards and forwards and can play anything at any key at any time. And that's what I, yeah. as a classical musician, you should be able to do that, too. A lot of people really can't. So uh, I wish I had 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 jazz ear training as a kid, just because of the sophistication and sort of the ear yeah, training I mean, level of it. Yeah, just to, to have to, uh, you know, relatively young, be able to identify not is it major or minor, but where does it go? Thirteenth chord, oh right, chords, and what altered notes within mm-hmm. that, and what's the mode and. You know, all that stuff. And, and duplicating on the spot. You know, playing back. I think that's the ideal. It's like classical written theory with jazz oral theory. That would be the sort of ideal training for young musicians. I have to hip you out to some uh, some modern... I wouldn't call it popular music, but some modern non-classical music that might blow your mind in terms of the level of seriousness that these guys are taking it with and the level of composition that they bring to yeah. it and stuff like that. Um, yeah, that's. I think that's pretty much what I wanted to get to today, Jeremy. I really uh, I, I appreciate uh, how open you are and how willing you are to talk about all the stuff that we wanted to do. Again, I'm super excited about our uh our premiere coming up in a couple of months and i'm really proud of your career um you really um from the outside i can see how hard you hustle and i can see how much you work and the fact that you're successful in three different very specific axes of 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 a music career is really really impressive and uh i'm proud to know you and i'm proud that that i'm associated with the, with your piece well likewise I can't wait for it it's going to be a great experience awesome well thanks for stopping by the man cave and uh, hopefully we'll do this again alright <laughs>